It's Monday, October 21st. Welcome to episode 19 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Here. Hi, I'm Jeff Eaton, your host for Insert Content Here. I'm a digital strategist with Lullabot, and every several weeks we get together and talk to interesting people who are doing cool things in the world of content strategy, digital publishing, and uh, generally just content and uh, cool technology. Um, this week we've got Mike Petroff. He's a digital content strategist with Harvard and he's juggles a whole host of interesting stuff. And uh, we're going to talk to him about some of the recent projects he's worked on and uh, what it's like being part of a, a major education institution with tons of uh, content and, uh, and stakeholders to juggle. Mike, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, digital content strategist, it, those kinds of titles cover such a wide range of things that it varies a lot from organization to organization, too. W- what kind of stuff do you wrangle in, in your role? Yeah, it's really interesting because my background, you know, like a lot of other people, has been in just being sort of that general web manager or the operations manager behind marketing and, and writing and content. But Specifically in this role in higher education, it, it sort of falls within three areas. I have my hand in a little bit of web content and maintaining some content for a major university sites within Harvard. Uh, a, a portion of it is in social, so maintaining some of our major social media accounts because uh, content tends to travel there pretty quickly and how we manage that is is a really interesting area. And also on the analytics side, because you can't you know measure anything without having your hand deep in the analytics and um, setting things up for success and also tagging and, and measuring as you go. So I, I'd sort of see it as those three areas specifically uh, and where we are in uh, Harvard University, the digital strategy office sort of sits in central administration, um, has our hands in the, the major properties that you see, but also helps guide and maintain, you know, what other uh, schools are doing, other offices, departments, uh, depending on how closely connected they are. So, you know, we might be helping them with a redesign or we may be just, you know, presenting guidelines or best practices or writing up, you know, how-to documents after we learn from a previous project. It seems like educational institutions always have like eight and a half million websites. <laughs> I think that number might be small <laughs> as an estimate. Uh, it's true. I mean, when you think about the breadth of uh, representation on the web that a higher, ed, a higher ed institution can have, I mean, you're going from, you know, what you see is the .edu site, but down to the department level, the faculty level, the amount of people that are there, student representation, you know, student groups. I mean, it it, it varies uh, widely, I think, is the other issue, that there's not sort of a flat way to design. There's not a flat way to, to treat content. Um, and now with, you know, the, the influx of, of social accounts and, you know, groups creating Tumblr accounts, if they don't have access to a server and can't create a website, you know, that that's the tricky part that you're getting into now where these sites sort of pop up and are very uh, temporary uh, and, and don't have the lasting power that, you know, five years ago we saw websites have. Uh, yeah, sort of the the democratizing effect of all of these services that make it really easy to publish suddenly becoming a really uh, a thorny you know coordination problem. 
Yeah, and and a lot of what we try to do is is insert ourselves early. You know, it's it's the whole you know every every conversation. Whenever I talk about content strategy with folks, is you know get in early, have the conversation early. You know, be organized before it launches. And I think you know the tricky part is it's never perfect. You're never going to come in before they launch the site. You're going to see something tweeted out by a student and say, oh, I never realized they had a website for that, or you know a faculty member sharing some new research on a site that's different from their department site, but. Uh, you know, I think it's 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 just a process. It's it's going through it, trying to remain organized as you go through the process, and slowly look for those opportunities to say, hey, you know, this person's doing this over here, and this person just launched this site. Maybe the two of them should talk, and I can you know share some guidelines with them, and maybe you know in six months' time that site can develop to be a more coordinated effort. So uh, it's never going to be an easy win. It's always that slow process that you kind of have to go through and and just keep a positive attitude with. It seems like, especially when you have students um, participating more in the process of, you know, building and maintaining, you know, these uh, websites and various, you know, kinds of content, um, if communication and training and getting people in on the conversation is a big part of it, is student turnover a, a difficult challenge? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, so to speak specifically where I interacted with students in a, in a previous world, I worked at Emerson College in Boston and... I worked in the admissions and enrollment area, so I worked directly with student tour guides and student representatives and financial aid office, and one of the initiatives that we started, you know, a while ago was student bloggers, and I think a lot of other schools are doing the same thing. Um, MIT was sort of famous for, start, you know, getting that started with their students and having that student voice, but the the issue there is, number one, you know, students aren't reliable, you know, when it comes to the year-to-year, in-and-out, you know, being their nine-to-five. I mean, their schedules change, their activities change, you know, what they represent for your school possibly changes, their voice can change as they find it over the years. So I think it's it's one of those evolving things that you just kind of see where it goes. Uh, the best thing you can do is just make sure that you're training uh you know, platform, whatever it is, whether it's an in-person meeting or it's documentation, uh, it remains consistent and is updated by a full-time staff member or someone that can be, uh, you know, training these students year in and year out because the problem that a lot of us fall into, and especially in just anyone writing for content, is that the trainers train, you know, the next set and then the, the trainees are then the trainers and they train all. It, it, it's this chain that just continues. And um, I think that's where you lo- lose a lot of the, uh, value in in the writing because it becomes sort of the lowest common denominator the next year and then it, it kind of degrades from that. So what we've always tried to do is is start with a staff member that has a good hold on what the goals of the project are. So is it to draw more attention to specific programs at the school? Is it to you know have more representation from typically underrepresented groups on campus? Uh, if you have that in mind, then the writing should follow that goal and help support it, and then you should have ways to measure that, um, rather than just say, hey, we want students to write. Go ahead and write about your classes, or go ahead and write about what you do here. I think then you fall into that territory just being very vanilla, and it just looks like every other school. Uh, so, you know, those are some of the things that I've learned over the years that you really need to have a targeted approach and have steady training each year if you're going to have students, you know, become a voice for your institution. Yeah, that, that's a similar problem that I've, you know, that I've heard from a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations that rely on heavy, heavy volunteer staff. You know, it's that that has to be a really, really explicit and well-maintained part of their process. And I think it's not only the 
the writing of the content, but it's also the sharing of the content too, because you know, what you're always trying to do with, with your social accounts, especially in higher education, is find those influencers, find those uh, advocates for you know, what you're trying to share out. And, and the students at the school typically are you know, the most active within the school organizations, have the most connections. And I think that's where the value comes in too that people tend to forget is they, they just hope that students write the post and then they have their email blast that they send or they have their you know, ways to get people to the blogs. They don't think necessarily that these students are the most connected to their writing too. So why not try to get them to you know, share some of the content within their student groups or if they're meeting a student on tour, mention you know, something recent that they wrote in the blog if it's a, you know, this dorm versus this dorm or something like that. So uh, those things are really powerful. You know, that word of mouth or the social spreading of that content really, really helps. And it, and it um, you know, gives that student a sense of value. Like if their, their post was talked about or someone said something great about that post, uh, I think that, that makes the student feel like they're much more important when it comes to what the overall content strategy is of the university. You also just, I'm not sure if it's actually relaunched yet, but I know you just completed a redesign of the Harvard Gazette. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. It launched in uh, early July, and um, yeah, it was a it was a big project for about probably about five to six months of a lot of planning and strategy. But yeah, it launched uh, with it's on WordPress, and in early July is when we actually went live with the new design. What role does the Gazette play in like you know your communications, and what prompted that redesign? Well, the the Harvard Gazette is within the the public affairs and communications area of Harvard University, and it's, it's sort of seen as the official news voice of of Harvard. So, I mean, it's it's existed for, oh gosh, I think they're doing a story on it soon. But uh, over a hundred years, it started as sort of a calendar, and then evolved into a newspaper, and then went to the web uh, in late two thousands, and um, you know, slowly has been sort of changing over time, you know, went into WordPress, so content management system actually was implemented. And then with this redesign, it was sort of looking at what are the trends that we're seeing uh, with readership? You know, are readers moving more towards mobile and tablet, which, I mean, everybody's seeing that specifically within the news area. Um, it's becoming dramatically more social. You know, our, our subscriber base for our email newsletter is growing. Uh, you know, what can we do with the design and the content structure in the site to help not only the readers coming into the site, but the editors, uh, you know, be able to build content to be able to support whatever they're trying to cover as years move forward. That makes sense. So, I mean, it sounds like the the changing metrics of, you know, who was reading it and what kind of patterns were there was a big driver for that. Um, were there any particular trends that you saw that were interesting or outside of what what you expected? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think over the past two or three years, it's it's mobile and social have been just huge. So I think it's not only just, okay, we have mobile traffic, let's make a mobile-friendly site. Uh, you know, there's that path you can go down, which you make the, the mobile version of the site and the, you know, desktop version of the site, which we had going for two or three years. But the biggest issue there, and, and an interesting trend that we saw is that usually when you develop a mobile site, you strip out a lot of the extraneous content, the sidebars, you know, possibly some of the carousel elements, video, if, you know, video is in Flash or something. But I think what was really interesting here is that I've only been at Harvard for a year now, a little over a year, and when I came here, there was some sort of, you know, uh, a track record of things that we wanted to change in the Gazette or, you know, areas that we knew we needed to improve over time. We were collecting those. But a lot of the suggestions came in of, you know, as mobile devices became stronger on what they could display content-wise, 
there's more of an effort to say, you know, hey, we built this carousel. You can't see it in the mobile browser, the mobile display site. So what can we do to try to change that? Or hey, we have this, you know, video playlist we want to embed. Or hey, we have this. So it seemed like the 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 type of content that was going into the story was changing as much as the you know users were coming to the site and what platforms they were on, what devices they were on. So it was that merge between what can we build on the site that's still viewable, but then how can we make the site display all that stuff across mobile, tablet, desktop that can still you know do everything that we want it to do. Yeah, the, I think that's a really interesting aspect of it because it's very easy when you know when you're embarking on the planning process to sort of view you know our content as as sort of a, a platonic ideal that then gets adapted to various contexts. But that idea of shaping it towards how people are using it, I think, is is a is a pretty important part of that process. Were there any changes that you like explicitly made you know towards those ends, or was it mostly just ref- sort of following what had already been happening? I think it's a little of both. I mean, the the Gazette editors and the team in in the HPAC, which is the Public Affairs Communication Office, had a very uh, specific set of goals that they wanted to achieve with the site, which I think was the basis for a really, um, you know, a project that you have goals that you can attain and achieve. Uh, but the, I mean, some of the things that we were looking at the old version of the Gazette and looking at the redesign and seeing how people were using the site is just the ease of access of, you know, trends that we're seeing across other news sites. I mean, surfacing using, you know, algorithms surfacing what's popular within the site, surfacing, you know, what's latest or what's related uh, specifically across, you know, other areas of the site that you might not, you know, know exist. Um, things like, you know, at the bottom of articles, one of the things that we are, are noticing actually some uh, really solid analytics for so far is, you know, this idea of stripping out a footer and replacing it with sort of a single next story. I mean, something that you're seeing across other sites is that, you know, giving less choice, is that going to, you know, decrease your numbers overall? Is that going to increase your numbers? You know, what are you trying to drive people to? Is it your contact page um, or is it the next story on your blog? So we made some little tweaks and changes, I think, in the UX just to say, you know, what can we provide the user as a single point of, uh, you know, a next step rather than just give them 45 options? You know, that whole idea of a sidebar becoming just the dumping ground for everything related for a story. You know, how can we be smarter about that? How can we look at analytics over the past two years and say, what are people clicking on? Why are they clicking on that? Um, you know, if it's events, well, what events should we be feeding into that area? If it's popular stories, is it popular within the category? Do they want to see just popular overall? Does that relate to what they're trying to find in the site? Um, and even down to search terms and helping, you know, influence some specific areas of search. Is our, you know, menu system broken? Does it need improving? Does, you know, are there specific pages within the site that the editors are spending, you know, hours on uh, building out, but really is never a good landing page on the site? You know, it's not generating that kind of traffic. Can they, you know, shift their their expertise into another area across the site? So. I mean, we're taking a look at, I mean, it's, it seems like a lot of the same kind of stuff that people look at with any web redesign, but I think within news and the idea that there's constantly uh, new stories and updates and things shift and change so much on the site on a daily basis, we wanted to build the site to be flexible enough to, to handle that for them. Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I think there's a, a fairly strong Drupal audience for, for the podcast, so... Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by the fact that it was built on WordPress because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the listeners tend to think of that as it's it's for blogging, 
and you know you you can't really push it too far beyond that without feeling the strain but it sounds like you've been really successful with it so far yeah i think we were really successful and i mean we have experience here using drupal we you know drupal is behind harvard.edu and um also the alumni website too which both are now um well you know the alumni site and and harvard.edu are both adaptive uh but i think it's it a lot of stuff translates between the two because i mean what we i think the the word that the, the Gazette editors never really thought of but started using as we started breaking things out and into content types, you know, and that idea that, you know, what can, you know, what is a story made up of? It's made up of a feature image. It's made up of a title. It's made up of a subhead. It has text in the body. And I mean, there were meetings that we had where it was just a, a, a one hour discussion on what we're calling everything. You know, I think that's, that's, but that's the kind of stuff, I mean, your, your listeners probably have had that situation, but I think that's really important to go into a meeting to say, this is what this is going to be called. This is what this, so once you, you know, wrap a name around it and wrap, you know, possibilities around something, but also sort of limits on what it can do, I think people start to figure out the best way to use a content type or a specific type of content to be inserted into a post. Uh, and then you're speaking the same language. So the content strategist and the editor are actually using the same kind of verbiage when it, and it comes to, hey, we want to make a tweak here. It's like, what are you trying to tweak? And they actually are using the same <laughs> words that you used in, in the documentation. It's kind of like that, that dream come true moment. Yeah, it's maintaining the master glossary between the language that, you know, three different groups of people use is never fun. If you can get them on the same page, that's a, that's a pretty big win. Absolutely, yeah. So if if you could like snap your fingers and and just make one CMS problem just vanish entirely, what what would that be? Oh man, that's a really good question. I I think it's it's something that gradually happens over time, but um, it's like the the slow creep of new, very specific assets that are only used on one area of the site. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's that, you know, building the one-off thing that handles something for two weeks and then disappears. Um, where what I, what I always constantly try to look at is, okay, you want to do this thing, you want to get here, and you want it to look like this. Are there any other areas where you want to also include that? Are there any other use cases for something similar? And then try to wrap that into a larger addition to the CMS or change or tweak within the CMS. Um, you know, rather than have all these outstanding elements. I mean, a big part of the redesign, too, is going through the back end of WordPress and saying, what are all these admin options that they have available that they're no longer using, that are outdated, that are no longer displaying anymore because we hit it on the front-end view, but it's still it's sitting in the back end. Um, so if there's a way to maintain that a little bit better and, and know what's going to happen with that element over time or have a way to just, I mean, it's tough to go back and, and look six months back and say, what did we add that we're not using anymore? Um, those kind of elements that just keep you know muddying up a system, I think, are the biggest problem, especially when you have someone that is a content creator with a CMS but doesn't necessarily know that that's an issue to have these outdated, irrelevant things that are just sitting in there that they're skipping over each time they're trying to produce something. Yeah, their job is, you know, to to get a particular promotional page out by Friday, not necessarily to think, in six months, who will be maintaining this? It's, you know, when I sit in on trainings where, you know, the editors are training writers or something, and they're going through all the fields that they use, and then they get to one and they say, yeah, we skipped that one, and someone asks, why don't we use it? And say, I don't know, we just haven't used it for a while. And that's always my, like, red light to say, like, wait, wait, what? What's going on? Why aren't you using this? Do you know what it does? 
so that that's just something that you constantly deal with when you're maintaining options within a CMS for for users and content creators. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's interesting that the idea of assessing the actual like the CMS and the content model itself becomes a part of governance, not just, you know, is this page outdated? Mm -hmm. And it's also connecting the dots with, so one of the things that we, we spend a lot of time with is explaining to the editors and to the content creators when they make this addition to a page or when this happens, here's how it travels out. Like here, you know, one of the things that I, I explained is, is when someone shares this on social, here are the elements that it chooses from when it comes to displaying the description text or displaying what photo or, you know, we implemented Twitter card galleries um, for some of the posts. So here's a post type that would generate a gallery and this is what it means. This is what it shows up like. So once they see how their content travels to, they spend more time paying attention to the elements that they might not see on the post when they publish it. But if they know how that metadata is treated when it goes to social or when it's embedded in something else, then that's when it starts to click for them. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. Here's how it looks on Twitter, and that's why. Yeah, I think Karen McGrain um, has talked about that as like content packages. You know, mm -hmm. you're you're not just making a page; you're making a package of content that's going to travel around to different places. And the page may be the one you're most used to seeing it on, but that's only a subset of what you're actually building out. And it's the same with responsive design too. You know, that content package looks different on every single type of device. I mean, one of the stats that I gave the Gazette team when we were going through the initial stages was, you know, in the past six months, over 1,000 types of devices have access the Gazette site. And, you know, what you're seeing on your desktop is not what, you know, a user may see on a phone. So, I mean, what was great was that they then started using their phones after publishing a post to say, how does this post look on my phone? Which was something that I don't think would have happened unless we had those discussions, you know, in the early days. And also just talking about how throughout the day there's different trends. I mean, I think it was the, the Guardian was a site to say that uh, more than 50% of their traffic within a specific morning hour was coming from mobile, you know, in the past year or two. That was like a big stat that came out. So, I mean, looking at trends and saying how users are using your site in the morning, afternoon, at night, and, uh, you know, trying to predict what kind of things we could put on the site to to help enforce, you know, what news that we're trying to share in the day and what they're going to be viewing it on. But that was just amazing to see people actually pay attention to, you know, we create a sidebar. The sidebar might not be the sidebar on the, the mobile device. So where does it appear? What does it look like? What things do I have to change? On the subject of like um, social social usage and sharing too, I know you've you've spoken recently about um, like the idea of making content more shareable, and I guess sort of meeting people where they're at online and getting getting important educational or news content out there instead of just trying to draw them into your central like your primary site. Can can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so I I work uh, with Perry Hewitt, the chief digital officer here, and I mean she's been an advocate for. Uh, she likes to use the term we, we're in the context business, uh, not the the breaking news business here. I mean, sometimes there is breaking news, but most cases, you know, like today with the March on Washington, you know, what we're looking for is is what Harvard experts are here to talk about the subject. Has Martin Luther King ever? I mean, we're we have a lot of speakers come through a place like Harvard. Do we have any content relevant to his speech that may have been a precursor to it? Um, so I think social, you know, when you look at our general plan for our Harvard account, it's trying to add context to the popular conversation going on in social. Uh, we tend to not try to create conversation. I mean, sometimes we do wrapped around things like our new, you know, class of 2017 coming in, but we always look through that lens of, 
you know, if we post this out and it's not something everyone else is talking about too, the the chance that more eyeballs are going to you know be attracted to it just because we're tweeting it out is is really unlikely. Uh, so I always try to look for that area. And I mean, it's same thing within the Gazette and how uh, you know this this web redesign and how they're focusing more on analytics. They're looking more at you know, how did this reaction story to this news piece do in our email, or how did it do on Harvard.edu, or how did it do on social? And looking at those three avenues to publish stories out, what are our audience craving on those platforms? So is email kind of one thing, and they're looking for more community news? Uh, is the, the Harvard.edu website more driven by organic traffic? So we're focusing more on key searches and things that people are looking for just in general about Harvard. Uh, and then social, is it more about the specific conversation of the day or the hour even? So uh, trying to, to look across our content and say what's the most relevant for each platform and how to share it out. And, and social, I mean, is, is one of those things that just changes hourly. And it's, I think, a, a strong thing that we try to do, too, is just have a really strong editorial calendar to, to try to plan for things, not to be prescriptive with this is the tweet going out on Friday that says this about this news item, but just a general kind of temperature check on what's going to be talked about in the world of social and do we have any content relevant to it so that day comes up we can keep an eye on it and say how do we react um, is it something that's worth writing a story on is it something worth just grabbing you know existing content on do we have a video that helps support it is that video in a playlist of other items so uh, social is that constantly evolving thing but there's there are some things you can do to help prepare for for that, you know, maneuvering each time you see something new. Do you have dedicated people like managing the social stuff, or is that something that just falls under the umbrella of of other editorial responsibilities? A, a big thing here is just people that are, are content or communications people, and and social is just an aspect of that. I think that's just a a job description kind of job title thing specifically here, but we, you know, I'm one of the people behind our main social accounts, so at Harvard on Twitter, Harvard's Facebook page, Google Plus, LinkedIn. Instagram. We also have um, two or three other people with access to those accounts. We have uh, another digital media strategist that's looking at our multimedia accounts, so things like iTunes U, YouTube, SoundCloud. Um, so we're kind of the link between the content creators and the publishing platforms. Uh, and then we just take it another step further since we're so close to it through out through the social channels. So if there's a new YouTube playlist, there's a constant conversation of you know, how are we utilizing this for social? Are we sharing it out? Are there specific times to use it? So uh, I wouldn't necessarily say there's one person whose sole responsibility is to just manage the social channels. It's more about, you know, being a link between the content creators and the publishing platforms and then extending that into the social media channels. So before we close up, like, what's next? It, it sounds like you've got a lot of irons in the fire. Is there anything in particular that's uh, interesting on the horizon that you're working on? Um, I mean, it, it's something that's in our minds, and I think it's something that I've seen other news sites do, and it's just something interesting to me on a personal level, but I feel like it's it's the commenting and commentary on news sites. I've just been following that really closely. I mean, there's kind of, I, I tweeted about this before, but there's sort of two paths that news sites are taking. It's the annotations path, a very specific, you know, line by line, you know, things like Medium and that kind of stuff are doing it for generating conversation on posts and on the platform itself rather than extending to Twitter or Facebook. Um, and then there's these sort of like, you know, comment grouping, which is, you know, the same groups of content spread over three or four different stories. Like I think the New York Times did that with, um, you know, a few different posts on Anthony Weiner when that happened, that there was this general statement at the end of a post to generate comments. So 
I, it's it's interesting to see comments sort of coming back into the foray of of content on a site rather than just saying oh comments happen on social but we'll draw people to the site just to read the story. So it's just something really interesting there. I mean, uh, with the Gazette, there's I think one story that we've activated content uh, comments for in the past to do a test case for it. But uh, it's it's something I'm playing, paying close attention to to see how not only you know the comments are handled when it comes to how to maintain them, but also just visually how they appear and then what you can do with them after the fact. That's actually an interesting idea, the the concept of ha of making tactical decisions about when comments will be a part of what you're doing, not just, you know, treating as like the commenting sauce that gets spread <laughs> over all the news. Yeah, yeah, it's that additional layer that is, is adding comments going to add value to the post? Is it going to, you know, is it is it one of those things that is just going to invite people to, to throw whatever their idea is and it's not going to add any value? It might actually detract value from the the blog itself, but, you know, everybody's been dealing with that through the past two or three years. I mean, Gawker completely changing things on the new Kinja platform to sort of, like, spread that out. But it, it's an interesting concept. It's that idea that you're just generating a post to then engage in conversation with your users and have your users add more value to your site and, and draw the eyeballs back to your own web platform versus um, letting them sort of go into Twitter or into Facebook and, and have their comments not appear side by side with the story. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I, I hope we'll get a chance to chat in the future. But good luck with your efforts and uh, congratulations on the redesign. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. Insert Content Here.